Welcome to part four in my series about the Indian Rebellion of 1857-58. This is the story of a British garrison of 1,500 soldiers and a similar number of civilians, including hundreds of women and children, besieged in a 60-acre compound in northern India. It's the story of a failed relief effort and a successful one, only for the relief column to end up being besieged too. And finally, it takes a general who commanded the thin red line against the Russians during the Crimean War to come to their rescue. And during that last successful relief, a record number of Victoria Crosses were awarded in a single bloody day. Then, having rescued the civilians, sparing them from a possible fate like the garrison at Kampur, the British abandoned the city, leaving it under Indian control for the next six months. This is the topsy-turvy story of the Siege of Lucknow. Simmering resentments against British rule from different parts of Indian society, not least disgruntled soldiers or sepoys, were coming to a head in 1857, as I outlined in episode one. Now, I won't go over all of that again here, but if you want to know the many different reasons, then check out that opening episode. The vortex of the storm was in Oud, with its capital at Lucknow. Here, the general resentments across India combined with the localised hostility to the British annexing their kingdom the year before. The king, or Nawab, Wajid Ali Shah, had been exiled to a palace near Calcutta. Nevertheless, the absence of the king did not make hostility to the British takeover disappear. Far from it. For a start, his second wife, Begum Hazrat Mahal, was willing to take up the cause, not least her 11-year-old son. And she's going to appear in our story in a little while. The British takeover of Oud was high-handed and mishandled. The brash British Chief Commissioner was rapidly replaced by veteran company man Sir Henry Lawrence in March 1857. Having spent over 30 years serving in India, Lawrence knew the subcontinent and its myriad of potential pitfalls well. But by then, the damage was already done. In mid-April, just a month after his appointment, Lawrence was warning the Governor-General, Lord Canning, that trouble was brewing. His views were ignored. And then, on the 10th of May, over 100 miles away, the sepoys mutinied near Delhi. Lawrence's predictions were coming true, and he recognised the precarious position the British were in, not just in Oud, but across northern India. Despite the situation remaining peaceful in his patch, Lawrence started to fortify his residency in Lucknow in case it was attacked. And as part of those plans, he gathered supplies of ammunition and food ready for a siege, called military pensioners, mainly Indian sepoys, out of retirement. On the 30th of May 1857, on the day of the Muslim festival of Eid, the Indian troops in Lucknow rose in rebellion. Within 10 days, garrisons across the former kingdom had joined the revolt and the British authority had evaporated. Only the garrisons at Lucknow and Kampur still held out. Across northern India, the revolt took hold. Whilst the south of the country stayed reasonably calm and the British secured the Punjab region, a whole swathe of country running from Delhi to Aud and south through Agra, Jhansi, Gwalior became no-go areas for the British. Even in Calcutta, the capital of British Bengal, the East India Company was spooked enough to bring the exiled king of Aud from his palace into the more secure Fort William, lest he rise in revolt. Meanwhile, back in Oud, the rebels had found a high-profile ally. Begum Hazrat Mahal announced that she and her 11-year-old son supported the rising. He was hailed as the new king, with his mother acting as regent, 
She was one of several fascinating women who took leading parts in the revolt against the British during the next 12 months. At the end of June, Lawrence received reports of an Indian rebel army gathering to the north of Lucknow with the intent of marching on the city. Lawrence led a reconnaissance mission out of Lucknow to ascertain the situation. His not inconsiderable force consisted of 700 men, including 300 British soldiers from the 32nd Regiment of Foot, as well as 200 Loyalist Indians from three regiments of the Bengal Native Infantry. They were accompanied by 200 cavalry and 13 cannon. The fact that Lawrence travelled on a military expedition in a horse-drawn buggy might give you an indication of how this is going to turn out. Travelling in the heat of an Indian summer's morning, without food or water, they met the rebel army near Chinhat. The rebel force outnumbered Lawrence's by almost 10 to 1. Commanded by Bakat Ahmad, a sepoy officer who had joined the rebellion, it consisted not just of former soldiers from the 22nd Bengal Native Infantry, but six companies of Audi regular soldiers and also a sizable number of local landowners and their retainers. The well-entrenched and marshalled Indian army held off an attack from the British 32nd Regiment. On the right, the Loyalist 13th Bengal Native Infantry tried to push into the village held by the rebels, but without the 32nd making progress, their position became exposed and they fell back under a rain of musket and artillery fire. Things went from bad to worse. Lawrence's Indian artillerymen overturned their guns and went over to the rebels. And upon seeing this debacle, his Sikh cavalry turned and fled the field. Lawrence could do nothing else than order a fighting retreat back to Lucknow. And fighting it certainly was. With the victorious Indian army closing in, it was actually in danger of becoming a rout. 21-year-old William George Cubitt, an officer in the 13th Bengal Native Infantry, turned his horse back three times to rescue men from the 32nd Regiment who were in danger of being cut off. He was awarded the Victoria Cross for his actions. On another occasion, a cavalry charge down the flank by the Indians was somehow turned back by a countercharge by the remaining British mounted units. The Battle of Chinhat, also called Chinhut, was one of the few victories that the Indians achieved in open combat with the British during the rebellion. And a victory it was. By lunchtime, the British were holed up in the residency in Lucknow and the rebel Indian army had taken over the rest of the old capital. Three days earlier, the garrison at Kaumpur had surrendered. So, with the exception of 60 acres around the residency in Lucknow, Aud was free of the British. The ensuing siege of Lucknow was to last for nearly six months. Inside the residency, Lawrence had command of just over 800 British and 700 Indian Loyalist troops. He also had the assistance of about 150 armed civilian volunteers. Of greater concern, especially when we recall what happened at Kalmpur in my last episode, there were 1,300 non-combatants, including hundreds of women and children. If Lawrence's position was precarious, it was made all the more so by the fact that the residency was overlooked by palaces and mosques. Structures which Lawrence had refused to demolish beforehand. And now, they provided cover and elevation for the Indian forces to fire down on his beleaguered garrison. Just two days into the siege, Lawrence was in his room when it was struck by a shell. Mortally wounded, he died on the 4th of July. On his deathbed, he passed military command to Colonel Inglis of the 32nd Regiment and political authority, such as it was, to Major Banks. 
The latter would be a short-lived appointment. Within a few days, Banks took a bullet to his head and, as Inglis recorded in his diary, died without a groan. Inglis was now in sole command and would remain so for the next three months. Colonel John Inglis was born in 1814. He was commissioned into the 32nd Regiment in 1833. He remained with the regiment, which later became the Duke of Cornwall's Light Infantry and is now part of the Rifles, throughout his military career. He'd already seen action in the Lower Canada Rebellion in the 1830s and also in the Second Anglo-Sikh War, where he'd been at the Battle of Gujarat. He was accompanied at Lucknow by his wife, Julia Selma Thesiger. Her elder brother would later serve in this war and would be mentioned in dispatches. However, that brother, Frederick Thesiger, would better be known both for the disaster at Isandwana during the Zulu War and by his title, Lord Chelmsford. While surrounded in the residency and totally outnumbered, things initially didn't seem too bad for Inglis. Within two weeks, Sir Henry Havelock had recaptured Kampur just 48 miles away and was making preparations to cross the Ganges and advance on Lucknow. The defenders of the residency conducted a series of sorties against the besieging army to both disrupt their plans and knock them off balance. Private William Dowling of the 32nd Regiment ventured out three times to the enemy positions and on each occasion disabled or spiked a cannon. He was one of three defenders to receive the Victoria Cross. Captain Samuel Hill Lawrence of the same regiment was another. He successfully prevented the Indian attackers setting off a mine underneath one of the walls. And meanwhile, Captain Robert Aitken of the 13th Bengal Native Infantry was also a recipient. On the 20th of August, the besiegers used bundles of hay to set fire to one of the outer gates of the residency. The 31-year-old from Cooper in Scotland actually opened the gate and under a hail of gunfire proceeded to remove the incendiaries from the door before running back inside. Aitkin survived the war and retired from the army as a colonel. He died in his native Scotland in 1887, was buried at St Andrews. But as an aside, his cousin was also awarded the Victoria Cross during the Siege of Ladysmith in the Second Anglo-Boer War in South Africa. On the 20th of July, Sir Henry Havelock had set out from Cawnpore to relieve Inglis and his garrison at Lucknow. The effort was beset by problems. Firstly, it took six days to ferry his 1,500-strong column across the Ganges. And in the height of the Indian summer, disease and heatstroke halved his fighting strength before he'd even encountered the Indian forces. With those losses mounting, he fell back to the Ganges and he urged Inglis to break out of the city. Inglis informed him that with his own casualties mounting and with hundreds of non-combatants, there was no way that he could successfully achieve such a feat. And now, Havelock received alarming news that a rebel army was advancing on Kampur and was forced to retrace his steps across the Ganges. Having done so, he was able to defeat that army at Bithor, but the failed relief of Lucknow was a PR victory for the Indians fighting British rule. They could announce that the British were certainly not invincible and they couldn't even raise a siege. It emboldened Indians elsewhere to join the revolt. Having arrived too late to prevent the massacre at Kampur in June and now having failed to relieve Lucknow, Havelock was superseded by Major General Sir James Outram. Born in Derbyshire in 1803, Outram had joined the East India Company's army as a 17-year-old cadet. From his earliest days in the army, he'd built a reputation as a man brimming with energy. He earned the nickname the Bayard of India when Sir Charles Napier compared him to the 15th century French soldier known as the Chevalier de Bayard, a knight without fear and beyond reproach. 
Having lived up to his accolades during the recent British military campaign in Persia, Outram was seen as the man to restore British control to Oud. Enlarging the army to over 3,000 men, including six battalions of British regulars, he began his advance almost two months to the day after Havelock had set out. Interestingly, Outram insisted that Havelock gain the glory for the relief operation and stood aside, acting in a civilian capacity, until Lucknow was taken. Well, that's how he put it, but Havelock noticed that his civilian boss was issuing a heck of a lot of military orders. Nevertheless, despite that minor irritation, the two men worked well and the relief column covered just over 40 miles in five days. Arriving at a lumbar, about uh, four miles from the residency on the 23rd of September, they found that the monsoon rains had effectively created swamps around the flanks of the city, meaning the only option was to storm straight through the city to the residency. This was going to be hard, and it was going to be bloody. Pinned down by determined defenders, the British force struggled to make any headway, and eventually had to rely on nine men almost doing a suicide mission to storm a bridge over the Chambar Canal before they could make any progress at all. Having secured the bridge over the canal, the 78th Highlanders, later the Seaforth Highlanders, led the charge, the British finally storming into the residency. In the process of this street fighting, General Neil, the man whose retribution following the Kalmpore massacre knew no bounds, was killed by a sepoy bullet. After his death, it was found that the man who had hanged Indians indiscriminately and made some of them lick up dried blood at the site of the Kalmpore massacre, had filled his saddlebags with sweets for the children besieged inside the residency. Human beings are strange beasts, aren't they? Angels turn into monsters, and monsters turn into angels. The siege of Lucknow had lasted 87 days. The British had broken through, but the Indians hadn't been defeated. They still controlled much of the city and the surrounding countryside. It had been Outram's plan to gather the garrison and civilians and evacuate the city. But having lost nearly a quarter of his force storming Lucknow, he simply didn't have the numbers to organise the safe withdrawal, even with Inglis's exhausted garrison supporting him. Outram decided that the best way to save the women and children would be to bolster the defences with what remained of his relief column and hold off the Indian rebels until a more substantial British force could arrive. And that force was coming under the command of General Sir Colin Campbell. In the meantime, taking overall command here in Lucknow, Outram left Inglis in charge of the residency, while Havelock extended the area of British control into some of the surrounding palaces. Outram also discovered a hoard of food and ammunition supplies hidden by Lawrence beneath the residency, which he hadn't had time to tell Inglis about before his death. Now, somewhat bizarrely, the siege of Lucknow restarted. It was to last for another six weeks. Admittedly, the British force was stronger, but their foe were far from downhearted. They renewed their attacks with artillery, sniper fire, and attempted to mine under the British positions on at least 20 occasions. Several of those efforts were thwarted by the British counter-tunnelling and breaking into and fighting in the Indian underground works. Meanwhile, General Sir Colin Campbell, the newly appointed British Commander-in-Chief in India, had made his way up the trunk road and had arrived in Kalmpore. Those of you who've watched or listened to my story about the Thin Red Line at the Battle of Balaclava might well remember General Campbell. This 64-year-old Scot had helped stabilise the British position at that crucial battle during the recent Crimean War. He'd started his military career serving under the future Duke of Wellington during the Peninsular War, and apart from the Crimean had also fought in the Anglo-Sikh Wars in the 1840s. 
Campbell, who was known as a slow, methodical campaigner, was preparing his Lucknow relief column when a messenger arrived from the city. A civilian, Thomas Henry Kavanagh, had disguised himself as a sepoy and had managed to get through the enemy lines and reach Kampur to deliver an update from Outram. He was also able to deliver valuable intelligence regarding enemy positions, which helped Campbell prepare his line of attack. For his brave mission, Kavanagh was awarded the Victoria Cross. Now, there seem to be a fair few of Britain's highest medal for valour appearing in this episode, which is true, but this one is a bit special. The Irishman was the first civilian to be awarded the VC. In fact, it's only ever happened on seven occasions, four of which were during this rebellion. On the 14th of November 1857, Campbell advanced to relieve Lucknow. His force consisted of 3,500 infantry, 600 cavalry and over 40 guns. However, the Indian forces massed against him were estimated to be anything of upwards of 30,000 men, some go as high as 60,000. They too had artillery, and they, unlike Campbell, were behind fortified positions. Furthermore, they had dammed the canal to the south of the city, flooding the route that Havelock had used to storm Lucknow a few months earlier. Campbell, ever cautious, had dismissed a full frontal attack long ago, and Kavanagh's appearance at his HQ with his latest intelligence around Lucknow had only confirmed his decision. Because, as Kavanagh pointed out, the monsoon season had passed, meaning that the frontal assault wasn't Campbell's only option. This time, the British would attack by flanking the city to the east, securing De Colcher Park, before moving on to La Martiniere, an elite British public school, and then storming into the city through the Sukundrabar and on to the residency. The initial advance was smooth enough, but as Campbell's force tried to seize the De Colcher Park, they were met by fierce resistance, both from soldiers inside the park itself and from a counterattack from Banks's house in the city. Nevertheless, the British were able to take their objective that morning and had seized the school by midday too. On the 15th of November, Campbell's army started to cross the canal, a process made considerably easier as it was dry, thanks to the Indians damming it to the south of the city, as I mentioned earlier. Through the day, the troops manhandled 18-pound artillery pieces across the dried canal, ready for the final assault the following morning. The 16th of November 1857 would see the bitterest and bloodiest fighting in this battle as the British broke into the city and attempted to storm the Secundabar en route to the residency. The Secundabar was a walled garden. There were parapets at each corner manned by Indian troops and the only entrance was a gate on the south wall. It was a natural strong point for the Indian defenders and was almost like a, an Indian Alamo. The task of storming this position was given to the 93rd Highland Regiment and the 4th Punjab Infantry. The 93rd were part of Campbell's thin red line in the Crimea. They would later become part of the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders. The 4th Punjab Infantry had been recruited from the remnants of the Sikh army following their defeat by the British in the 1840s. It was one of the first units to adopt Khaki and remained loyal to the British throughout the rebellion sweeping northern India in 1857-58. In fact, they'd already participated on the British side in the capture of Delhi back in August. With the cry of Remember Kaumpur, the Highlanders charged the main gate alongside the Punjabs, and in vicious hand-to-hand -hand fighting, the two regiments resorted to bayonet charges to clear the garden. The Indian defenders lost somewhere between 2,000 and 2,500 men in the battle. Sources vary. Six Victoria Crosses were awarded to the men of the 93rd for their part in the ferocious battle for the walled garden. 
As the afternoon progressed, the British had to peel away from their objective of reaching the residency to deal with another Indian rebel strongpoint, the Shah Najjar, which is a walled mosque. In a three-hour battle, the British artillery could make no impact on the thick walls, and they started to take so many casualties that officers, or the few officers that remained, considered a withdrawal. The problem was that Indian sepoys had now stationed themselves in the former royal palace, the Kazabar, and could catch the British in a deadly crossfire if they tried to retreat. Basically, the British were stuck. Eventually, a small party of Highlanders managed to work their way round to the far side of the compound, where they found an entrance, which was widened by some sappers or engineers, and then entering the Sharnajar, they opened the main gate from the inside, and finally the British were able to press home their attack. With this obstacle removed, Campbell was finally able to link up with the defenders at the residency. The second siege of Lucknow was over. The 16th of November 1857 stands out in British military history. 24 Victoria Crosses were awarded to the troops fighting their way into Lucknow, the most ever awarded in a single day in the medal's long, illustrious history. One of the recipients was a Canadian member of the Naval Brigade. The 450-strong Naval Brigade had been drawn from HMS Shannon, which had been ordered to Calcutta from China, and had accompanied Campbell's column with their heavy naval guns. During the fighting at the Shah Najjar, this Canadian had remained firing his gun when the rest of the crew were either killed or injured. William Hall from Nova Scotia was the third Canadian and the first Nova Scotian to be awarded the Victoria Cross. He was also the first black man to receive the VC. Rather like the lifting of the first siege, the British did not actually control the whole city of Lucknow. The Royal Palace, for instance, was still very much holding out. Campbell was not keen to sacrifice the lives of his men conducting a vicious street fight. He was all too aware of how costly such a tactic had been for Outram and Havelock, and indeed also at the storming of Delhi. Moreover, he was now receiving urgent messages informing him that Kaunpur was once more threatened, this time by an army led by Tancha Tope, who we met in the last episode. Campbell weighed up his options. His mission had been to lift the siege and save both the garrison and, equally importantly, the hundreds of civilians trapped in the city. And he'd done that. Whilst he was unsure he had the firepower to take and then hold the rest of the city, he certainly had the firepower to organise an effective evacuation. On the 19th of November, he ordered his artillery to bombard the Royal Palace, giving the Indian defenders the indication that it was the prelude to an all-out British assault. And whilst they were thus occupied, Campbell completed a swift evacuation of the civilians and wounded, and his whole force fell back on Alambar. It was here on the 24th of November that Sir Henry Havelock died from a sudden bout of dysentery. Campbell now left Altram defending this position with 4,000 men to prevent the Indian forces in Lucknow launching an attack on his rear. He then took his remaining soldiers together with the civilians and headed towards Kaunpur. By the time he reached the Ganges he found that the British garrison he had left in Kaunpur had been driven out of the city and were now on the far bank of the river. Tantitope was once more in charge of Kaunpur. Fortunately for Campbell, the bridge across the river was still intact, and despite attempts by Tope to set it on fire, Campbell was able to move across the Ganges to meet this new Indian threat. On the 6th of December, the two armies clashed in what is termed the Second Battle of Kaunpur. Despite the two sides being of a similar size, Campbell was able to achieve a decisive victory, clearing the field and capturing the city again. The British remained at Kaunpur until the following March, when Campbell once more advanced on Lucknow. This time, with no garrison or civilian population to relieve, 
Campbell's men stormed the city, capturing the royal palace. It had taken nine months, but Lucknow was now once more under British control, and it marked a turning point in the Indian rebels' fortunes. But by then, March 1858, the rebellion had taken many more turns and many more lives, as Indians elsewhere rose against the British. And my next episode is going to focus on one of the most remarkable Indian leaders of them all, a warrior queen, the Rani of Jansi, and her incredible war with the British. Thanks for joining me today, and I hope you enjoyed that episode. And I look forward to you joining me next time for that episode about the Rani of Jansi. If you've got any questions or ideas for future episodes, then please drop me a line at my website. And if you enjoyed my work and want to learn more about British history, then get my weekly newsletter, also at the website, www.thehistorychap.com. Until next time, thanks for your support. Keep well, and I look forward to being with you very soon.